Welcome to Bible Study Today. I'm sure you'll find this study very interesting and we'll talk about that soon. But first I'd like to introduce our panel. On my right in the studio is Ken. Good morning listeners and great to be with you all again today. And directly opposite me is Harvey. Hi all, nice to be here. And Brenton is our facilitator today. It's a privilege to be able to share God's word with our listeners again today. And uh, as facilitator, Brenton, you will take control of this study and we look forward to it very much. Thank you. Before we commence our study, I'm going to invite Harvey if he would uh, offer a word of prayer for us. Thank you, Harvey. We thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of being here today to study your word again. May the Holy Spirit be here to guide in everything that's done so that we will learn the lesson which you would have us learn for Jesus' sake. Amen. 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 Today in our study we're going to be looking at mercy and justice specifically in two sections of the Bible, Psalms and Proverbs. During the course of our Bible studies so far, over the last few weeks, we have talked about the fact that when God created man, he intended that particularly in society after the fall of man, that those who were, shall we say, in a more advantageous position, whether it be by wealth or by influence, would look after the weaker and more defenceless members of the society. And I would like to share a statement with you before we really get into our Bible study today. I'd like you to think about this. The test of justice in a nation is how the weakest are treated. Mm. The test of justice in a nation is how the weakest are treated. I found that a fairly challenging statement. Have any of our panel got any comments on that? I think it's very um, true because when you overlook the rights of those who, are, who don't have much power, then the system is only favouring one aspect of society. But when we consider the rights and needs of the less fortunate and society cares for them then it's a much more balanced um, government I suppose we could say. Mm, thank you Len. Any other comments either Ken or Harvey? Just that it's very easy for people to sort of ignore those that have very little influence or very little power in a society but it really is a judge it's probably an indication, I should say, of what the society's like if they are the ones mm. being looked after because mm. most other people can look after themselves. It's a good point. Um, some of us can remember back not that many um, state elections ago where a young lady by the name of Kelly Vincent mm. was elected to state parliament. Kelly Vincent represents disabled and people with disabilities. Yes. Uh, that's, that's almost unique uh, in my experience in my lifetime here, and I've lived most of my life in South Australia, to actually have one of these, uh, shall we say, disadvantaged groups or less powerful groups have a voice actually in parliament. All right. What I wanted to do today to get our discussion going is having a look. It's very easy to sit here and uh, pontificate, if that's the correct word, on um, the ills in society and how uh, 
the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and you only have to turn to the media to find that but I want to be a little more specific let's have a look at the word of God and let's have a look at some of the things that God said to Israel that he was particularly displeased with in their treatment of those who were in these categories Ken I believe you've got Amos chapter 8 <coughs> verses 4 and 5 would you like to share those with our listeners sure uh, I'm reading from the King James Version, and uh, chapter 8 and verse 4. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone, that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small, and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver, and the needy for a pair of shoes, yes, and sell the refuge of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall not the land tremble for this, and every one mourn that dwelleth therein? And it shall rise up wholly as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt." Thank you. Um, what are some of the specific things that God is reprimanding them for here very strongly? Well, one of them was um, the wealthy taking advantage of the poor. Mm -hmm. In what regard, Len? It's, it's very specific. It mentions something that we're familiar well, with. It was talking about buying something for silver, whereas probably it should have been bought for gold. It also mentions dishonest scales, doesn't it? Yes. Because in their society... A lot of things that were sold were measured out, mm. and they were charging more for less, <laughs> yes. if you can put it that way. So yeah. that's one of the things. Harvey, you have a text for us too, I believe. Yes, it's Proverbs 11, 1, and this is in the Revised Standard Version. Proverbs 11, 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. That's mm. pretty clear, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Well, the false weight is basically referring to stealing, isn't it? Yes. You're yes. charging for less than what the person should reasonably get. So that's breaking one of God's commandments. Mm. Have we had examples of this in our corporate society recently? Uh, I don't even think we have to look even to corporate. I think from government downwards, it's just that's the way it is today, unfortunately. Mm, mm. Think back to the Banking Royal Commission that was in place either the beginning of this year or last year. What did we have? We had banks charging dead people <laughs> fees. Well, they were charging for services that were not given. That were given. not given. That's, that's so, another thing that they were doing. It's so, the same principle, isn't it? Yes, of course. Really. Len, you've got a text for us too, I believe. All right, yeah. Well, I, want, I wanted to actually make a little mm, comment because you know. I, I've been in <clears> business. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in the motor car business, and I find or have found that it's almost criminal what happens. For example, a water pump that would fit the type of vehicles that I was working on, I would buy that water pump for $68. Right. The recommended retail price was $670. So if anyone wanted to go by the book they would be making um, Ten, something like nearly. yeah, almost a 1,000% profit. Mm. Mm. 
Well, in my case, I did what was relatively normal. I would add about a third to the cost price and people would get it for around about 90-something mm. dollars. That's how it goes. And um, That's a very I'll, interesting uh, comment, Len. And, uh, yeah, I'll finish here. I don't want to keep talking about myself, but um, I would buy a vehicle sometimes and quite often people wanted more than the vehicles were worth and I would say, well, it's got this wrong with it and that and that and that. It's going to cost me X dollars to fix it up get it saleable, therefore, to give myself a little bit of a profit margin, I will offer you this. And that was acceptable, because I wasn't making a huge profit. All right, you want to hear from Isaiah? Yes. Chapter, um, five. chapter 5 and verse 8. Well, this is one of the woe statements in it the is. Bible. There's six of them, actually, in this chapter, Len. Yes. This is the first one. <laughs> woe to you who add house to house and join field to field, till no space is left, and you live alone in the land which is really to, uh, saying the Lord disapproves of just accumulating stuff for yourself and having no consideration for Brothers. anybody else. Because, of course, in their society, they tended to live separately, didn't they? So by doing this, they were really preventing other people from having the opportunity of being able to enjoy peace and security because they were buying it all up and just adding to it as they went along. <laughs> Well, we've seen that happen right here in South Australia, yes, probably for different have. reasons, <laughs> where a, a farmer might die or his son doesn't want to take over the property, that a more wealthy farmer will buy that property, and so there's an uh, accumulation of properties. And whereas once we'd have all these little farmhouses dotted around the place, now they're just ruins and there's just one major property one of the things that we're going to look at today is from uh, the book of Psalms, chapter 9, uh, where, which is a psalm of David. It's um, not a psalm that you would hear very often, but uh, it's, it's a good one, and I thought that we would have a look at it together. It starts out with praise, but it also talks about um, how God will uh, judge those who are down on, shall we say, the wicked. Um, can we have a look at verses 3, 4 and 5 of that one, please, Harvey? Psalm 9, verse 3, 4 and 5, just at this stage, I think. When my enemies turned back, they stumbled and perished before thee, for thou hast maintained my just cause. Thou hast sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. Thou hast rebuked the nations. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. So did David find himself at times in trouble? Plenty. <laughs> well, if you read right through the Psalms, there are various pleas to God to um, set the wrong things right. Yes. And besides other things. And this is basically something like that. David is saying, you, God, have acted righteously. You have upheld my rights and my cause judging righteously but of course many people don't do that in their lives all they want is get 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 to the re regardless of the yes. rights yeah. and needs yeah. of others 
Yeah. Len, would you like to read verse 13 of the same chapter? Because here David is now becoming very, very personal. Right. He says in verse 13, this is Psalm um, 9, nine <coughs> verse 13. O Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death. Mm-hmm. And here is... Well, in his earlier life, before David became king, he was unjustly persecuted by King Saul, who tried to actually kill him and Mm. sent out a band of warriors to capture David. And I'm sure David had many sleepless nights wondering about this. How can he, without offending the king, who was the reigning Mm. king, who David Mm. respected and honoured, how can just or justice be made and the only appeal that he had was to God God yes. is a God of justice Yeah, Ken could you share with us First Samuel chapter 20 and verse 1 which is exactly what um, Len has been saying that here you find that David in the context of where it's actually happening he's actually making a, a statement to his friend Jonathan I think most people who know anything about the Bible know that David and Jonathan were the very best of friends but um, poor old David when you read chapter 20 and verse 1 you uh, find that David's bewildered Then David fled from north, uh, north at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked what have I done? What is my crime? Why have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life? This is exactly what Len was talking about. <laughs> Do you realise that um, some of the research I did recently, it's possible there may have been a period of some seven or eight years that Saul was relentlessly pursuing David with the intention of killing him. And um, it seems to me that there must have been, as you said, Len, many times many sleepless nights where he wondered am I going to wake up tomorrow mm. <clears throat> whereas tomorrow my time is up did you have a comment Len, on yes that? I do I, <clears throat> I was thinking of the other side why was Saul after David he was after him only because of jealousy Yes, he mm. was jealous that David was becoming more popular than he yeah. and so what do you do to the opposition you get rid of them one of the questions that, the, that I had here is, do you think David's experiences as a fugitive from Saul made him more understanding and compassionate when he became king? That's a, a good question, isn't it? <laughs> because it can, those experiences can make you bitter. They can make you withdrawn. They can make you wary of everybody and trusting nobody. Or it can open you up to the possibility of seeing that the experiences that you have been through when you come across someone in a similar helpless and disadvantaged situation you can show them genuine compassion actually we have got an example while you're thinking about answering that turn to second samuel chapter 9 and verses 3 and 7 and harvey i'm going to get you to read those verses this is an interesting chapter I have preached a sermon on this chapter because I believe the gospel is actually found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's talking about a guy who many people stumble over. His name was Mephibosheth. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? 
the kindness of God. Stop for a moment there, Harvey. The kindness of God. The kindness of God. Okay, now verse 7. Thank you. And verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Is that an indication, panel, that uh, David may have, at least at some point in his life as king, learnt the lesson of compassion? Showing com- this man was helpless. He had nothing. <laughs> he called himself a dead dog. He said, what are you doing dealing with a dead dog like myself? I'm a nobody. Well, he returned good for evil. Yes. And um, that question you asked, there before that that came out of the left field i think it did a little uh, loud (laughs) but i think um it appears as if david did learn during his time of being chased by the king that he must made a resolution i will not be like that i will be like what god wants me to be and i think that's a very noble resolution that he made Is it something that we should take on board ourselves? I find it an amazing, amazing story because here's David. He's been pursued by Saul. Saul's out to kill him. There's no if and buts about that. Pursues him everywhere, day and night. And here's David who has, I think, every right to be uh, angry and uh, annoyed and uh, want perhaps to get back at him. And, of course, at one chance, one uh, time, has the opportunity to actually kill Saul and he doesn't do anything about it. So really an amazing story about the character of David. What Harvey read, though, is particularly instructive, isn't it? Is there anyone that I can show the kindness of God? Mm. I thought that was particularly good, Harvey. Len? David was known to be a very good king. In fact, the Lord spoke about David as being a man after his own heart. In other words, he was of a noble character, and yet... Despite all that, David did some dastardly things wrong. Admittedly, he repented later on, but he wasn't all perfect. Moving along, um, (laughs) there's a statement made in our study for today. It's simply entitled, Do Something, God. I think all of us have probably thought about that at various times. Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 82, uh, which is an interesting psalm again it's a psalm of not David but Asaph what uh, panel struck me when I was studying this is how direct some of these Old Testament people seem to be when they are addressing God with their complaints uh, their inquiries and their injustices that they feel that they're suffering they don't hold back they, they tell God exactly how it is as far as they're concerned. Uh, I'd like someone to read verse 2 and 3 of this one. The first verse says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. Now, that term among the gods is not referring to other gods. It's referring to people who are in control of society, such as kings, such as judges, such as princes, people like that. Um, but then in verse 2 and 3, he really tells God where it's at from his perspective. Len, would you like to read those couple okay. of verses? Psalm 82 verses 2 and 3. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? 
defend the cause of the weak and fatherless, maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Well, in reality here, the psalmist Asaph is blaming God for looking after the people with power in society and neglecting those who don't have the power, the Mm -hmm. needy. But I don't think his um, plea was actually true. In other words, God was not just looking after those who didn't need looking after and neglecting those who did. Mm. Uh, But he was attributing that to God. Okay. Could you read verse 4 as well? Uh, Thanks, Wayne. Or did you read verse 4? No, I didn't. I think you only read verse 2 and 3, but let's look at verse 4 as well. Uh, Here he is giving God an order. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. It, It seems to me as though he has a number of complaints against God. Is it possible? What What do you think? Is it is it possible that it's not so much a matter of he doesn't believe God is capable of solving these issues? He's simply asking the question, when are you going to do something about it? Because from my perspective, sitting back here writing this psalm, all I see is injustice all around me. I think it's it's an interesting point again. <clears throat> we have to put ourselves in his in his shoes, and because God is a person you don't physically see. Uh, and you see these things happening, you would obviously, many people would ask the question, why is God let, letting this happen? Because we can't see the big picture, we don't know what's uh-huh. behind it. Yeah. And of course, as God sets up monarchs and kings, uh, which would have been well known to yes. these people, they would say, well, well, God, you've set this person up and he's not a very good ruler. So they would be asking these questions, uh, have you made a mistake? Mm. Harvey, I think you had a comment, did you? Yes, um... When it says, how long will you judge unjustly, he's attributing something to God which obviously wouldn't have been from God. But isn't that typical of today? Mm. Isn't that typical of today? What do we call it, Harvey, today? Well, if we have an earthquake or a fire or something, it's an act of God. (laughs) And, you know, but it isn't an act of God. But the devil probably smiles every time that's used because what should be attributed to him as being attributed to God. Good point. And uh, so as far as I'm concerned, Asaph, as you say, who's the psalmist here, he was obviously speaking out of frustration. I think He so. was seeing how those with power were, seemed to succeed, mm. where those that had little power were not succeeding. Yeah, Lynn. This begs another question. Is it okay to attack God? This is an an, an attack on God. Is it okay that we vent our anger or vent our anguish to God? Well, I think it is acceptable. I do too. I think God is greater and mightier and can handle all our... Trivial complaints. ...little (laughs) issues that we have... Mind you, I don't think we should make a practice of attacking God. Otherwise, we might find ourselves in a rather difficult situation. But I think God wants us to express how we feel about Mm. things and let him be part of it, that we don't just carry it all by ourselves. Yes. Yes. Ken? Um, I'd just like to go back for a second. uh, A statement Harvey made... I think needs a bit of clarification. That's an act of God. 
Uh, <clears throat> most people, I believe, would not realize, and it clearly does tell us in the Bible, that Satan is the ruler of this world. And so when all these nasty things happen, we automatically blame God, and it's not actually God that's doing it. And uh, yes, <clears throat> that's just that. one of those uh, unfortunate things. And uh, I think it, it just needs a little bit uh, clarification. The other thing, of course, is as we see all around the world, God has been taken out of most things. Christianity yes. has been taken out of most yeah. things. And as we know, God never forces his opinion or himself on anyone. He, it's a freely, a freely thing. So you can't expect to, uh, shall we say, uh, get rid of the place and then wonder why there's so much crime. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. Lee? Well, I would like to speak directly to our listeners in this way. I know some of you listeners have troubles in your life. Maybe you've had an accident, maybe you've got a disease, things that you regard as unfair. And I know, well, I feel that many of you will probably have said at some stage of your life, God, why did you let this happen? Or God, why didn't you fix the problem? But God is much greater than that. What God expects us to do is to commit our lives to him and not really worry about those things. If we commit our lives to him, his promise is sure that we will have eternal life, even though we might have difficulties here and now, like Job did, yes. like Daniel did, mm -hmm. like Joseph did, yes. like heaps and heaps of other mm -hmm. people we read about in the Bible. We need to commit our lives to him and leave it to him. I would like to add to that before we move on. Um, uh, part of my uh, brief as a minister is also chaplaincy work, of which I do quite a bit, going to quite a number of hospitals. I've spent a lot of time recently in the Royal Adelaide Hospital uh, in the intensive care unit, uh, trying to minister to people in many cases who are unconscious. And I have now been asked to join a team who are going to be responsible for coming in under end of life situations. In other words, I might be called in at three o'clock in the morning uh -huh. to minister to someone who's dying and the, the immediate family or friends that are there. Um, one of the things I have learnt, uh, Len, and I appreciate your comments, is this. When I'm dealing with a person that I know is nearly at the end of the road, I simply ask the Lord for two things. I ask the Lord to forgive their sins because they can't physically or verbalise what needs to be so I believe in situations like that we can act in a sense as a mediator for that person by saying Lord please forgive this person's sins number one and number two please give them a home in heaven I believe that God answers those prayers when we are faithful and when we are as it were representing others who are unable to be able to represent themselves it's uh, this act of God thing, as you said, Ken, is interesting. What's interesting about it is that uh, if the outcome was good, I don't see too many people in the media or the paper or on TV praising God and saying thank you very much for the rain that was sent or thank you very much that we avoided this financial mishap or, or whatever. <laughs> good point. Okay, let's move on. We're going to now turn to yet another psalm, not much further along, Psalm 101 which um, deals with a king's promise. 
and it is stated that this was probably a psalm of David that was written very early in his reign and maybe something that's or some vows that he made at the time that he became king. I find that interesting because when you think of his son Solomon, when Solomon was asked by God, and as far as I know in the Bible, Solomon was the only man who was ever asked by God, exactly what do you want and I'll give it to you. Mm. Now, I don't know personally how any of us would handle it if God said to me, Brenton, I'm going to give you anything you want. What do you want? He asked for wisdom in order to execute justice and to be a judge rightly. That was his son. But this is David that we're dealing with here in Psalm 101. Verse 2 and verse 3 are particularly instructive. Ken, could you read those for us, please? Sure. <coughs> I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. And verse 4 as well, too. A forward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Do you think that's a good uh, motto to have uh, for a, a ruler? It doesn't have to be a king. It can be a governor. It can be a premier. It can be... Us. A minister. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it can be anybody in a position of authority, can't it? Absolutely, yes. When I was um, in my teaching career, some children told me, they were these upper primary children, told me about some of their friends who were on drugs and things like that. And I gave them this advice. I said, you better get a new set of friends. And um, yes, some did. I remember one girl who didn't, and she was a very bright girl, very capable, but um, she got in with the wrong crowd, and she became like them, and what I saw as a bright career ahead of her turned out to be not like that. Now, in observing how people live, we can take lessons from positive and negative yes. behaviour. Yes, we can. And I think this was a psalm of David, that David recognised the evil in society and in other people, and he made a determination, no, I will not be like that. Let's have a look at uh, verse 1 of Psalm 101. We have read um, 3, 4 and 5, or 2, 3 and 4, but... Verse 1, we almost missed that, and yet this is these are two of the principal attributes of God's character. Harvey, could you read verse 1 for us, please? I will sing of mercy and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. Now, some of you might remember that back in the Old Testament, um, before this time, in the time of Moses, Moses said to God, show me your glory. And uh, some of the things that God said is the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, but by no means clearing the guilty. I haven't got the time to read the texts today, but just by comparing those with what's being said here, you realise that these are some of the chief attributes of God, and maybe they're attributes that he's asking us to show to one another. just want <coughs> to share something with you. You know, there are many people, many Protestants, who believe in this eternal torment in an ever-burning hell 
In other words, for eternity, the wicked are going to be punished. I see that as an affront to God's justice. Yes. How could God give such a harsh punishment for a person who's exercised the right that was God-given in the beginning to either serve him or not serve him? Now, I, I cannot understand that people can hold that doctrine of eternal torment in an ever-burning hell. That's not justice. No, that's, uh, <laughs> that's sadism, I think. It's, it's terrible. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's being sadistic. It's an attack on the nature mm. of God. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Harvey. I had that... I made a comment once to a person, and I said, really, you're speaking about a God that I don't know. It's not mm. my God that mm. does, does a thing like that. And the person responded, who was a Christian, a believer... Um, certainly believed in God and believed in that they were in a saved relationship with God but they said that's not God doing that that's the decision of the person to do that and I said but I can't really accept that because how would a person make a decision any sort of decision and say that's the way I'm going to go I'm going to go and do something which is going to cause me to burn in an everlasting or eternal fire of hell and be yes. painful for eternity. That just doesn't make sense to me. Nobody will make that sort of decision. They may, may make a decision, and I accept that, and I know it's true that there are some people that say, I don't want anything to do with God. And God will honour that decision, and he'll be sad about it. But the person will eventually be destroyed um, when it's the elimination of evil yes, happens yes, at the end true. of the uh, at you know as the Bible speaks about. Mm. But it isn't an ever burning hell. Uh, thank you for that um, panel. Uh, let's have a look then. We've had a number of cries for justice here from David, from Asaph. Uh, now in Psalm 101, we're looking briefly at um, da a psalm of David where he articulates, if you will, some of the things that he would like to um, see in his reign as king. But there was a descendant of David whom we know as Jesus Christ. And I'd like us to turn to the book of Luke to see whether he fulfilled some of these things that we're talking about could someone look up Luke 4, 18 and 19 and read that for me, please? But I'd like someone else to also read chapter 7 and verse 22. Len, perhaps you could read Luke 4, 18 and 19. And Ken, could you read Luke 7 and verse 22 after Len has read his section? We would call this Christ's um, mission statement, Yes, essentially. Well, he's actually quoting from the Old Testament from Isaiah. Yes, yeah. Isaiah 61. Yes, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner. I'll read that again, I'm sorry. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. 
And here is Christ saying, look, I'm not here to gain wealth. I'm not here to promote a um, uh, a gospel of, I can't think of the term. Um, a social justice gospel, perhaps? No, a, no? a wealth gospel. A health and wealth gospel. A health and wealth gospel. <laughs> Which is being promoted today. Prosperity by gospel. Prosperity. That's the, that's the word. Thank a lot you, of, Harvey. Uh, a lot of people promote a prosperity gospel yes. these days. I'm not here to do that. I'm no. here to give hope to no. those who don't have hope. No. I'm here to give a rich message of mm. God's love to those who are despondent and despair. Mm. Mm. It, it's interesting that you could read all of those verses, those two verses, Len, that you've read, you could read them all with a spiritual context. Yes. But you can also read them with a physical context, which Harvey's about to share with us in Chapter 7. Oh, sorry, Ken, my apologies, Ken. Uh, chapter 7 and verse 22, where... John the Baptist sends some of his disciples and, and basically John is reaching a point. He's languishing in prison and he's saying to himself, this guy who I've announced as the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the Saviour of the world, doesn't appear to be working along the lines that I'd like to see him working. Should we be looking for someone else? Ken, what does it say? Then Jesus answered, answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. Tell me, did he fulfil his mission statement or not? I think he certainly did in more ways than one. Any other comments on that? Hmm. When you say observed or completed his mission statement, I think the very fact that Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. Yes. He had done what he set out to do. He did. Lynn, did you have a comment on that one? Yes, well, we certainly know what Christ's work was. And his work was the work of restitution. Restitution of one's relationship with God. Restitution in being able to live a relatively normal life. Yes. And... um, Eugene Peterson in the message says something like this God is good at fixing things up or making things right I think that was the mm, I like that. Mm. God's, God's business mm. is making things right mm. yeah that's, that's interesting here's something to think about though even uh, I want you to really think about this as we continue on with our study when you look at Christ's ministry on earth When you look at his ministry on earth, you come to several conclusions. What you read, Ken, is true. We all know that Christ spent more time healing and ministering to people's needs than he did preaching. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. But have you ever thought of the other side of the coin, which to many people these days who are struggling in our society, I'm talking about struggling financially, Christ's coming did not raise the standard of living in Palestine. It raised the quality of life. It enhanced the quality of life. In some cases, it gave back life. But it did not... The grinding taxes that they were subject to were still there by the Romans and by the publicans. Their standard of living did not improve in the sense of that financially they were better off than before. 
What did improve was their spiritual tone. What mm. did improve was their physical health because we're told that wherever Christ went, any village that he went through, there was not a sick person to be found in it. So all of those features by themselves, but I'm simply looking at the economic factors. The economic factors appear to me to have not changed a great deal. Any comment on that? Well, I'd just like to add two things in it. Firstly, that sure. uh, uh, although Jesus went around healing everybody that basically came into contact with these people firstly many of them weren't Christians Correct. they're just everyday people that uh, that he came into uh, contact with and his second thing he helped them first and then told them about the gospel Yes. and I think, I think that's an interesting thing I think sometimes today perhaps many people out there forget that Christianity in the church, it was them that started schools and hospitals and all these sort of things to help other people. There have been many social reformers in the world. Mm, I think of um, what happened with child slavery. I think of what happened with slavery. William Wilberforce. Yes, Mm. that was with child slavery and with slavery. um, And there's still slavery going on these days. We can't close our eyes to that. However, Christ was a social reformer in a different way, that within the context of where people were, that they could endure, endure is not really the right word, but the issues that they had to deal with became less important. He was a social reformer with a spiritual way. He changed their focus, didn't he? Their focus, rather than being on themselves, their focus became more outward because to many of them at that time they were just struggling to survive in financially, morally, spiritually. I mean, we touched on it last week, didn't we? 603 rules and regulations for keeping the Sabbath. Sabbath, You'd look forward to Sabbath, wouldn't you, every week (laughs) without fails. Um, Yes. The Apostle Paul spoke about having a thorn in the flesh now some people have said he may have had poor eyesight he may have been partially lame he might have been uh, very uh, short all these things are possibilities we don't really know but what did God say to him my grace is sufficient for you you. Mm -hmm. so Paul went through the rest of his life with that disability or that problem whatever he had But it wasn't something that he worried about. He said later on, I count all those things as just rubbish. What's important to me is my relationship with the Lord. Mm. And that's the message, Len, that we can leave with our listeners, isn't it? Uh, Share with them. I'd like us to turn to Psalm 146, which is one of the last Psalms. Um, Psalm 146. It's interesting that as you get towards the end of the Psalms, 146, 147, 148, 149, 150, they're basically praise Psalms and the, and the praise seems to swell and swell and swell till you get to Psalm 115, which is basically just all out praise. 150. One, yeah, that's Psalm 150, but we're looking at Psalm 146. No, but you said... 
when you get to Psalm 115, it's all out. 150. It was 150. My apologies. <laughs> I <laughs> meant Psalm 150. Psalm 150 uh, is, simply says this. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. <clears throat> praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him in the mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's Psalm 150. But we're having a look at Psalm 146, and I'd like someone to read verse 5 for us, please. Psalm 146 and verse 5. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Should that be our motto that we are sharing a panel with our listeners, that we are happy that the God of Jacob is our help and our hope is in the Lord, the problem is we can't share it with our listeners unless we believe that ourselves. Is that a fair comment? Mm. That's fair, yes. yes, well, I want to say further to that, mm. my hope is in the Lord. Um, perhaps it's... Um, a little bit um, it's a bit uncomfortable for me to say that okay we've got most things covered in life we've got a little bit of money in the bank and Mm -hmm. we've got food on the table and we've got medical benefits and things like that but really those things are not that important to me what is important is the hope that I have in the return of Jesus that my life is going to be spent in uh, for eternity in the presence of the God who made me, the God who redeemed me, the God who loves me. All these other things are fairly immaterial. Mm, thank you, Len. Any other uh, statements or uh, testimonies in, in to what <coughs> Len has just said? Yeah, I think I'd like to add that uh, sometimes perhaps listeners may think, well, we talk about praising God, but don't, you don't know what my problem is. I can assure you, if you were to go around everyone in a church and talk to them, you would find that many have exceedingly worse problems than you may have yourself. But the thing is, they they have a connection with God, and they can see, or shall we say, they can see into the future to a degree and realize that this earth and uh, the time we're in it is is on a, a, a collision path with the return of Jesus, which is not that far away. And they know that the the times of refreshing, the times of wonderfulness is uh, basically just around the corner. So any challenges that come up against them today, they realise this is just a a dent in the road. Okay, Harvey. I think that we all probably have heard the term happiest place on earth. And it's talking about Disneyland. (laughs) (laughs) Happiest place on earth. But I, I dispute that completely. I believe the happiest people are the people that know that they have Jesus as their saviour. It doesn't mean they won't be hurting, but even the hurting can be happy because they know their future is assured. And when Jesus comes, all the hurting will stop. It's been promised in scripture. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. Mm. and to actually look forward to something like that, as Len made comment. It's happiness in hope, and Mm. uh, certainly 
if you have the hope of the future, and I mean eternity as a future, then what happens to you now is of far less importance. I would probably substitute a different word there, Harvey, although I understand what you're saying. I think peace. Jesus said, I, my peace. peace I give unto you. Yes. And really, when you have that hope, you have peace. Not everything will be right in your life. No, I don't believe that's what the word peace there actually means, Len. But I think it means peace with God is surpasses and transcends everything. Well, I, th I think of people uh, who've been slapped in prison simply because they left the Lord. Mm -hmm. And um, some of those conditions are terrible. I think of what happened during the Dark and Middle Ages with the persecution of Protestants. And many of those people went to their death singing hymns or praying for their tormentors and things. They had peace. They weren't happy about the fact that they were having to suffer all this pain or whatever, but they had peace with God, which is a wonderful thing to have. Mm, it is indeed. I'd like to add uh, my personal testimony very briefly to this because I know our time is moving on. Len is um, sharing with us um, how we are going. Um, in 1996, I had a life-changing experience. It's something that I've never forgotten, probably never will forget. I was privileged to go to a place called Moldova, which was for one of the former USSR republics. It's now part of modern-day Europe, I believe, and it's also the poorest country in Europe. It wasn't until I came to that country and spent five and a half weeks there running a Bible program, incidentally, for people who had only come out of communism four years before or five years before that I realised how poor these people really were. One of the things that I remember clearly is that uh, a minister friend of mine who was running the programs said that he said, Brenton, he said, for some of these people here tonight who have put up their hands to indicate they wish to accept Jesus, he said the only time their life is going to improve is when they're in heaven. Mm. And I think that was very relevant. I came back from that experience. The things that I thought were important in life before became unimportant. What I owned, what I drove where I lived, uh, the clothes I wore, who my friends were and that sort of thing. That's important, who your friends are. <laughs> Len, you touched on that. You mm -hmm. Choose the right friends. But yeah. I think you're getting the drift of what I'm saying. Basically, the things that before maybe I had attached more importance to, I began to realise that the only really important thing in life was helping other people to know Jesus as their personal saviour. And I think that that's in all of these things that we're studying here in Jesus spent most of his time it states in here he spent most of his time with the poor and the needy not with the rich and the learned one of the thrusts of this study today is our attitude and what we do about it to the underprivileged in yes. society mm -hmm. and I think it's important that we open this up a little bit if we see these people in society and we do nothing about it that's as bad as doing something bad to them yes so where there is a need it's important for us as christians to recognize the difficulties that those people are having and if it's within our power 
to do something about it. We should. Mm. Let me read a statement here that I thought was particularly interesting. Take away suffering and need and we should have no way of understanding the mercy and love of God. No way of knowing the compassionate, sympathetic Heavenly Father. Never does the gospel put on an aspect of greater loveliness than when it is brought to the most needy and destitute regions. Mm. I found that a particularly powerful and compelling statement. It's almost <coughs> suggesting that God has allowed in society, grades of society, I notice what I said, I didn't say um, he ordained, I said he has allowed those situations to be in society to allow us to understand the mercy and compassion of our loving Heavenly Father. It should make us more compassionate. It should. Uh, when I lived in uh, Colombia in South America and actually went to the Adventist church there, it was all in Spanish and I didn't understand a lot of it. <laughs> but the point was, all the churches there were full. Some of them had three or four uh, meetings a day. Really? And mm. it's one of the poorest places I've ever been in, but I have to honestly say the people were very happy. And I'm not talking about the people that were necessarily in church everywhere mm -hmm. I went. Uh, people, even though they were very, very poor, and in many of them not in very good circumstances, seemed to be, I'll use perhaps content's not the right word, but they seemed to be cheery and happy. And often we find people that are extremely rich really aren't that happy. Mm. So I thought mm. it was an interesting mm. observation. Uh, Ken, that's very interesting because I found the same thing in Moldova. I mm. went to people's homes who they had invited us for a meal and we said after we left it probably cost them a month's oh. wages to provide a meal for us coming from Australia to their country <coughs> to be their guests. And yet, poor as they were, many of them seemed to be fairly content in life mm. and could I say it kindly but nicely much happier than many Australians I see around us who want everything they want it all as the ad says on TV and they want it now mm. um, <coughs> let's move on one more text because we're fast running out of time Len is uh, <laughs> keeping us on the boil here I'd like someone to read Proverbs 30 verses 7 to 9 because there's a very interesting philosophy in here and this is probably a good place for us to start winding up our Bible study for today. Proverbs 30, verse 7 to 9. It's written, uh, this particular proverb was not written by Solomon. It was written by a guy called Agur. No one seems to be able to tell you too much about um, who Agur actually was. But verses 7 to 9 are interesting. Who would like to read those for us, please? Happy to do that one. Thank you, Ken. Uh, Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Wow. And verse 9 too. Lest I be full and deny thee, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal, and take the name of my God in vain. Okay. What do you see in these texts? Very quickly, panel, what do you see in these texts? Is there a balance here? He's Absolutely. asking yes. for a balance. Mm. Not too much, just... not too little. Mm. Yes. What is the consequence if you have too little? I may be tempted to steal <laughs> yeah. to supply my needs. If you have too much, you forget. You God. don't give thanks to the Lord for the fact that you, you, you have it. Mm. Harvey, any comment on that before we... Uh... Well, I'd just make the comment that 
the place I've been, I've been in several of these yes, third have. world countries. Mm-hmm. I have found them to be generally very happy people, um, especially if they're Christians. And just quickly, I would say I heard a discussion on the radio one time and they asked the question, when is a person rich? And the conclusion was, after about 40 minutes of discussion, when a person thinks they have enough. And I think this verse is talking about that. Lord, give me enough. Yes, That's but all. not too much. No, mm. no. Okay. Well, look, that is uh, a good place for us to wind up our study for today. Paul actually talks about this in Philippians 4, um, and I'm going to read it to you very, very quickly. He says this, Philippians chapter 4, he says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned to, in whatever state I am, to be content. Mm. I know how to be Mm. based, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What a wonderful place to finish our study for today. It's time for our closing prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity of again looking into your word to glean some of the treasures that are there. And Lord, I recognize that some of our listeners are dealing with big issues. And I just want to pray for them. And I want to pray for us who know you, that we will not be unaware of the issues that are round about us and that you will use us to relieve those things that come into our immediate context. And I want to pray for our listeners, Lord, that they will put their hope and trust and confidence in you and that we will do the same. This we pray in giving our thanks in the name of the Lord Mm. Jesus Christ. Mm. Amen. Amen. Amen.